the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi, and welcome to another Behind the Headlines show on the Saturday Network. I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-host this week, as usual, is... Neil Bradley. Hi there, everyone. We're also joined this week by Mr. Harrison Keeley. Hi, everyone. Harrison is their co-host on Truth Perspective, but this week he joins us on Behind the Headlines because he just can't get enough of those radio shows in. Yeah, yeah well, he actually is paying for the fact that he wasn't on his own show last night. Oh, that's he, right. He yeah. had to do something mm-hmm. uh, to, to earn his keep. So uh, we've press ganged them into being on the show. So everybody give a big warm welcome to Harrison. Hooray! Where's your applause? Where's your applause, sound man? Anyway, we're slowing down. I think we lost it. Part of all the audios we lost. Yeah, well, maybe we don't have our applause anymore. We'll get it back. I'll do sound effects from now on. You need a drum roll? No, no. That sounds like a machine gun. (laughs) Uh, Better not. Anyway, yes, so here we are again on the internet talking about crazy stuff happening in the world. What kind of crazy stuff would we like to talk about this week? There is no shortage. Well, in the news, it seems like everywhere in the news this past week and well, mostly in the past week I've noticed, but in back a few weeks has been the the migrant refugee crisis in Europe. Mm. And I just, even just today, I've noticed like watching the RT feed, I think they had like five to 10 articles on it in the past day or two. It seems like every, it's just coming up over and over again. Big news. It's big news. But what's what they want people to know about. Exactly. Because, because in some of the articles that, that uh, I've been reading, it just getting an idea of what's been going on the entire year is that this isn't a new story. No. Um, that, no, no, no. I mean, just some of the statistics, like um, just in this year alone, um, according to the UN, um, from their figures, so it's hard to know if these are accurate or not, but already 2,600 people have died just in the, in, the, the, in the boats trying to get across the Mediterranean from Syria and other countries to, into Europe. So 2,600 people in this year. And I think it's higher than that. Yeah, it's got to be higher than that. Uh, especially considering all the other modes of of traffic and uh, people um, smuggling people, you know, across borders and stuff like that. That's just the people that they've documented and the figures that they've released for the trying to cross the ocean. And um, apparently, 350,000 people. Again, these are figures. You know, the official figures have made the, have attempted this journey across the Mediterranean. And again, that's just across the Mediterranean. 350,000 people this year. What was the 2,600 number? Those are the numbers that, that have died. Uh, died. died, okay. So drownings or um, you know, other deaths like that. So it's not a new issue. And this is something like, um, well, uh, um, Syria has a population, for example, of, well, it had a population of about 23 million before, um, so this is pre-2011. And 50%, well, close to 50%, um, 11.7 million are displaced. 
this is internally and externally. Half the population. Half the population of Syria. So this is a this is a huge issue that's been going on for a long time. It's been going on all year, and yet it's just now that it's all in the news. And part of that, I think, has been the photo of the of the three year old boy. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his his name? Yeah, Ilan Kurdi. And so that kind of it seems that has sparked a lot of the public outcry and attention into this. And like in one in one of RT's articles, they said that. Um, they're kind of trying to give some perspective on what's going on. And so they say that some some said they hoped the images of the boy lying on the beach and his limp body being scooped up by a rescue worker could be a turning point in the debate over how to handle the surge of people heading towards Europe. So one of the figures that spoke up on this was Nadim Houri, who is the Human Rights Watch Deputy Director for Middle East and North Africa. And he called it the biggest indictment of collective failure and of course, there are all kinds of tweets going around. You know, shame on the world. I see no human, but I see human, but no humanity. And um, so, this is just—it's—it is a huge issue, but it, in a sense, it's not a new issue. And these are these are crocodile tears. Yes. These are when your authorities allow you to express your sympathy. People crawl out of the woodwork and go, "Oh, I'm Western liberal." Uh, I'm a human too. Here are my tears. This issue means a lot to me. Please, government, do something about it. That's what's going on here. I mean, it's it, and beyond a regional issue, say Syria into Europe, simultaneously with statements made this week by European leaders, <clears throat> um, was a declaration by Abbott, the Prime Minister of Australia, jumping on the bandwagon and saying. Australia, too, will be taking a certain quota of refugees, Syrian refugees. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking Australia, Syria, there's a long, long way between the two. What's that about? Yeah, well, because Australia is part of of the West, you know, even though it's way down there in the the butt of the world. um, Australia is very much a part of the West, which, so this is a complete... uh, discombobulated reconfiguration of the entire planet. Of course, you know, none of these terms really make sense, but Australia definitely is, you know, Australia may as well is attached to Europe, you know, or attached to America uh, in every way, but geographically. So um, they always speak up when there's anything going on uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, in the West. So, mm-hmm. yes, we support this. So they're basically on song with everything the pasty white Western cycles uh, I've ever said or done so um they're they're the real even more so than europe they're the uh they're they're the, the definition of a of a western lackey. Kind of a lackey or a stooge of the u.s u.s government you know u.s empire um but yeah uh did, did abbott say how many refugees australia is planning to take do you know well he just gave some arbitrary figure australian treatment of Refugees mm-hmm. is notorious. Yeah, it has been. Keep them on ships. Refugees from... Uh, Sorry, Australia is not big enough for all, for all these refugees. You're all going to have to stay out on ships. From East Timor and from Papua New Guinea and places like that, they've always had, yeah, taken a really hard line. And now it's, yeah, so there's something a bit manipulated about the whole thing, obviously. And the major manipulation is the absolute and complete silence on the 
the truth about the situation with anybody. Anybody who's been reading, who has kept up to date with what uh, has caused this, knows that back in 2011, um, the so-called revolution in Syria was a phony, fake revolution. Um, had nothing to do really with the majority of the Syrian population, the ordinary people of Syria. It was entirely manufactured by the U.S. and its kind of client Gulf monarchy states who wanted to get rid of um, Bashar al-Assad. So staged a revolution by flooding the country with a bunch of cutthroat thug-type fundy Muslim pork-eating, you know, prostitute cocaine snorting, cocaine snorting fundamentalist Muslims. That's Just like they did in Libya. Yeah. Uh, exactly the same thing as it is in Libya, and obviously there's a lot of Libyans uh, and people from, not just people from, from Libya who are trying to get out of Libya because of the chaos that was created in Libya because of the NATO bombardment of Libya to get rid of Gaddafi, um, but also um, Africans from further south, uh, other African countries south of Libya who previously would have, um, if they wanted to flee their country because of some Western-inspired <clears throat> war or, or, or Western-supported dictator in, a, in an African country further south from Libya, they would have come to uh, a place like Libya where they would have received uh, a kind of haven from Gaddafi. Um, but since they overthrew Gaddafi during the NATO bombardment of Gaddafi and the use of these kind of um, mercenaries, um, a lot of black Africans that were effectively refugees in Libya were, were being targeted and killed. So it's not surprising that you see a lot of um, not just Libyan, i.e. Arab, African Arabs coming across in boats, but you see a lot of black Africans coming across from Libya. Um, that's not their officially their homeland. So this is all totally, entirely created by these Western governments. And it's just disgusting to see or to hear the Western media uh, talk about it in terms of, you know, yeah, these refugees are coming to the West, to Europe, in seek of a, in search of a better life. And that's a, as far as they go in explaining mm -hmm. the cause of this problem that is jerking everybody's uh, chains and provoking tears, as Neil was just saying, crocodile tears from different people some genuine tears and genuine sympathy from ordinary Europeans, but if they're completely clueless as to why it's actually happening, then, you know, they're just, they're going to be manipulated because all they see is, oh, poor babies, poor people dying, poor people in need, let's help them. You know, it's as, as big a con as, for example, back in the 80s, people remember um, Live Aid, you know, for famines in Africa, all the pop stars, the 80s pop stars, singing uh, their famous song to raise money and stuff. And Bono, that uh, pseudo-Irish beep, who uh, should be, he should, he should be actually... Uh, Bono should, became a billionaire this week. Yeah. But no, he also announced he's going to do another concert for the for the refugees. Mm. There's a good, there's good, for uh, the poor people. There's a good documentary you should watch on that, on what really happened and what the real... Um, deal was behind that Live Aid kind of program where they were supposedly pop stars were supposedly raising money for African famine victims. It's called Star Suckers and it exposes the fact that uh, 
it didn't help at all, despite what was said at the time and the, this emotional wave of, of sympathy that was provoked from, you know, European populations that and also provoked them to or uh, encouraged them to open their wallets and give money that it basically helped uh, nobody in Africa. And it was just one, one giant con. It's called Star Suckers. You should watch it. It's not very long, but it's very informative. Um, and the other thing, the other interesting thing was that in 2005, they had another big conference, or not conference, concert uh, down in London in Hyde Park where similar kind of... Live 8, it was called. Live it was it was on the day that the G8 was meeting in Edinburgh uh, to supposedly cancel third world debt. And on that same day, the London bombings happened. It was the 7th of July, <clears throat> 2005. Of course, that completely removed the idea of removing or cancelling third world debt from the from the agenda. And suddenly it was terrorism, 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 terrorism. terrorism. Uh, so that that outpouring of of kind of all that manipulation, albeit genuine, it was a manipulated um, sense of or a manipulation of public sympathy was then immediately turned mm-hmm. and, and brought low again to being afraid of the other instead of uh, the natural human inclination to uh, be concerned for the other when that other is in, in need, it was turned into fear the other. And that's, is, what, and that's what they do, you know. Which is exactly what's going to happen here. Um, it's encouraging to see um, people in Germany, in the UK, everywhere in Europe, uh, the outpouring of support for the migrants. They've been c- coming off trains in Germany and Austria. They've been crossing borders on foot. And there are groups of people who have spontaneously, it would appear, gone to greet them, sh- give them shelter, give them food and access to water. And it's set off a wave of popular support. Mm-hmm. We've seen... Uh, at football matches across Europe and other public events, massive banners unfurled. But the public's behind us in a big way. The reason we don't get too excited about it is because we know what's coming next. They're going to take that sympathy and use it as a weapon against you. Yeah, or not so much, maybe not so much used as a weapon, but uh, having looked at this, the, the way these uh, these kind of elite creatures operate uh, when the opportunity presents itself or when there is this mass outpouring of sympathy and it's essentially a good positive uh, dynamic in, in a Western society <clears throat> particularly in the last 10 or 15 years they um, seem to take those opportunities or see those see those situations as a threat mm-hmm. um, because they don't want people they don't want to see any hands across the divide and people mm-hmm. coming together and this, uh, these positive feelings towards other human beings. They want the exact opposite. They want everybody afraid. That's what the war on terror and 9-11 was all about and all the other terror attacks since then. Um, so they can see this as a threat and then I kind of get the impression that they, they, they derive some kind of perverse pleasure in, in bringing people back down, you know, and turning something that could have been a positive into a negative uh, so yeah, I mean, it, it seems this situation seems to be ripe for them to engage in this kind of a tactic, which is 
yeah, when people are feeling good about other people, let's make them feel bad about other people. Let's make them feel afraid, terrified. Uh, let's, you know, and it's not hard here. It's, it's not, that's the strategy. Maybe it takes a while to, to develop that kind of a strategy and to plan it out. The actual details of it are quite simple. You just put a bomb somewhere. And this is what people don't grasp, you know, is that how simple it is to carry out a terror attack and blame someone else. Mm-hmm. You know, just get some people to be in the right place at the right time, walk into a restaurant or walk into a hotel, and you've already planted a bomb there. When they walk in, you detonate it. Everybody saw these dark-skinned people walking into a hotel. The bomb goes off. Everybody says, yeah, these are the guys. And you're there as well to <clears throat> take these two guys out and provide a profile of them to show that they were jihadi terrorists, blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And it's done and dusted, you know. And if that's linked with the migrants or the refugees coming, then everybody is going to turn 180 degrees mm-hmm. on this refugee business and this uh, um, you know, outpouring of, of, yeah. of sympathy. It's going to be turned on its head and everybody's going to say, okay, no more terrorists, lock down our borders, nobody's allowed in. But then the problem is, what do you do with them all? Because if you've already let them in, yeah. and this is these people above and beyond all governments in the world kind of thing, this shadow government or deep state or whatever you want to call it, uh, they do this because they have nothing to lose, obviously. It's not their government. They don't have any government in this necessarily. They control all of them but uh, and manipulate them to a certain extent. But they are happy to create this kind of situation because their enemy fundamentally is human beings in general mm-hmm. and human evolution, genuine, true, positive human evolution. They want to retard that and stop that from happening. Uh, so they carry out these kind of uh, mass traumatic terroristic attacks to traumatize people and to to prevent them effectively from, from the, prevent society from functioning normally and progressing. And uh, if they do that, they, they that would be a horrible situation because, and it would be an extremely evil kind of thing to do, but this is, these people are extremely evil. So you have a situation where you have tens of thousands, let's say, of or more of... Yeah, um, it's going to be way more than that. Or hundreds of thousands of, mm-hmm. of refugees from Syria and Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan already in Europe and then they turn the people in in Europe who have agreed and are happy to host them, turn them against them and make them terrified of them. And then added on top of that is the it'll be very easy in that situation to then blame the people and say, Well, you know, if you think about it, look at look at what you were supporting. Yeah. It's, it's all really your fault. fault. Yeah. And they love to blame yeah. the victims effectively. And we've been We've been seeing the, the natural progression of this. I, I think this is just the logical conclusion to things that have been going on for a while now, because earlier this year, uh, well, on SOT, we, we started a, a series of SOT focus articles on, like, we called it Holocaust 2.0, just about the amount of demonization, bigotry, and racism against Muslims all over Europe. And so that was in the news for for months, and it seemed like whenever there was a report about about um, Muslims in European countries, like whether it be France, or the Netherlands, or wherever else, or the UK, it was about the 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 kind of official view that this was a problem, and then the the cultural societal view that uh, of just racism and totally not understanding a different, uh, you know, somewhat different people with somewhat different beliefs or culture or whatever, and so. That seemed to be the dominant narrative for a, a long time. And now in the past few, few weeks, that has just turned around completely. And so we see a new dichotomy between what the people are expressing. And that goes, like you were saying, Neil, about like the, the banners at, at football matches. And we've seen protests like in, 
in Germany and France. Um, just today in Paris, there was an, uh, a march of eight, like eight and a half thousand people, um, you know, chanting slogans like refugees are welcome. We're all descendants of refugees, just very supportive of the idea. And this is in France. But then again, um, there was also a poll done in the last week that showed that 55% of French citizens are against softer refugee laws, kind of like an even split between the people who are who are welcoming refugees and, and others that are saying, well, you know, we don't really want any more. Yeah, I think it's I think it's more like this is a temporary aberration yeah. in which the other side, people with more more decent, are being given a little platform for mm-hmm. a while, and eventually they'll swing back and give the give the mic back over to the right-wing right wing authoritarians. But they need an event to justify that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, the whole yeah that whole clash of civilization thing is uh, is kind of interesting because I think we've kind of talked about him before. His name's Samuel P. Huntington. He was a think tanker, kind of foreign policy expert in the U.S. in the in the eighties. I think it was nineteen eighty nineteen ninety three. He wrote uh, an article in a foreign policy magazine called "The Clash of Civilizations?" question mark And he basically put forward the idea that after the Cold War the next clash uh, was going to be between Islam and the West. And um, at the time, his uh, his thesis was kind of dismissed during the 90s. He was kind of dismissed that it was too simplistic, etc. Um, but it gained more traction after 9-11, of course, you know, that mm-hmm. there would be a war between Islam and the West, you know. Um, but again, that was created. At, at the time, certain people uh, in... Um, certain foreign policy advocates and uh, this kind of elite that we talk about, this criminal elite that we talk about, may have um, looked at his thesis and said, yeah, it's not, actually, a great idea. It's not actually true, but we can make it true, yeah. So, um, or maybe he was, you know, he was uh, had a premonition mm-hmm. of something that was coming down the line. But he, he uh, on, on other points, he actually said that he died in 2008, but he said uh, some other interesting things. Um, a kind of famous quote from him is that the West won the world not by the superiority of its ideas or values or religion, but rather by its superiority in applying organized violence. Westerners often forget this. Non-Westerners never do. Uh, so he obviously, you know, he wasn't just a, uh, this hunting guy wasn't just a, uh, a rabble-rousing, warmonger-type guy. He he knew when he's saying things like that. He he knew the truth of the situation. But he also, um, at the time, he made a when he was talking about what was going to happen after the 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 end of the Cold War and this clash of civilizations. He said that uh, he wrote in the same article that Ukraine might divide along the cultural line between the more Catholic Western Ukraine and Orthodox Eastern Ukraine. Uh, he said, while a statist approach highlights the possibility of a Russian-Ukrainian war, a civilizational approach minimizes that and instead highlights the possibility of Ukraine splitting in half, a separation which which cultural factors would lead one to predict might be more violent than that of Czechoslovakia, but less bloody than that of Yugoslavia. So he seemed to have, uh, back in the 90s, predicted uh, what would happen in Ukraine as well. Mm. But again, we see that this guy's kind of somehow predicting this stuff, but... Uh, there's no real reason to see how it would happen except in terms of you know, civilizational theory or whatever. But then you see that how 
it does actually happen is through pure manipulation. So he was wrong in terms of his theory. It should not have happened. There was no reason for it to happen uh, in the context of normal development mm-hmm. in the world without cycles and power. But uh, it seems that they seized on a lot of his ideas and said, hey, this guy's got some good ideas. They'll never happen unless we make them happen. Um, so, yeah, that that just I was just reading about him and stuff, and it kind of got me um, got me thinking about the the that Ukraine situation again. Although it's kind of on the back burner to some extent for now, but I'm not sure what we said when we were discussing it on the various shows that we we talked about our analysis of it, but. It seems to me that um, that it may well have been done. Well, obviously, we know that Ukrainian coup was staged, the revolution, color revolution in Ukraine. Um, when was it? Last year? Yeah, it was just last year. Mm-hmm. It was was largely financed and organised by the U.S. government. But it seems that, to me, anyway, that. Um, they did that with the intention, not just of taking Ukraine away from um, from Russia, but in the knowledge that it would provoke Russia to <clears throat> um, do what it did, which was seize or take back, let's say, Crimea to protect its Black Sea fleet, which is pretty important to the Russians. And the knock-on effect from that that I'm... I'm here, I'm giving a lot of credit to these people, but I think we should, when I say these people, I mean these U.S. kind of warmongers, that they knew that when Russia took Ukraine back, that they could spin that in the media and use it to frighten, do what they've done basically, which is frighten all of Europe into hating Russia and thereby drive another wedge and ensure that there was no kind of Eurasian or Russian-European integration. so, I mean, that's giving them a lot of credit in terms of steps ahead, but I think they do try and think steps ahead. So it wasn't just about taking uh, Ukraine away. It was about provoking Russia into doing something that the Russians may well have known mm-hmm. was a provocation and was going to result in uh, a negative uh, situation for them, but that they could not ignore it, that they had to do it. And that's, I mean, if, if you're a kind of strategist, those are the kind of things that you want to try and pinpoint. If you're looking at situations, that's the kind of situation you want to pinpoint where your enemy uh, where you provoke your enemy to do something, but you know that they're not so stupid that they're going to just act on your provocation and shoot themselves in the foot. You want to create a situation or find something where they cannot but respond in the way you want them to to your provocation. And by doing that, they will be shooting themselves in the foot. Mm. So, I mean, that seems to be the the situation. Well, that's what's played out, basically. Let's put it that way. That's what has happened. Russia has saved its Black Sea fleet in Crimea, but it has also... Um, kind of uh, driven this wedge between whatever approachment was possible between the EU or Europe and and Russia has taken a few knocks or a few steps backwards, at least because of the Crimea situation uh, and Ukraine. So, yeah. Well, I think the Americans probably would have liked if Russia had done what the U.S. is saying that they've done. So a military intervention, like overt military intervention, and actually, you know, maybe 
shoot a few people in Crimea right. and have it actually be a military takeover. Right. And they didn't get that, but um, what they got was good enough that they could still spin it that way. Right. Well, so that's, that's, yeah, that yeah. suggests that Russia did know that, that was what, what, what was yeah. happening. You know, okay, these people have us in a bind, but we have to have to secure yeah. Crimea and the Black Sea Fleet. But let's minimize the damage as much as, much as possible. So Russia takes those, uh, develops that strategy or, or uh, takes that approach where they don't do the invasion and. As a result, like you're saying, Harrison, um, yeah, maybe the U.S. would have liked to see them really blunder in there and fall for take take the bait fully. Mm-hmm. Russia didn't. It did what it needed to do and no more. Um, and that's why we've seen such a massive amount of really provably bullshit propaganda yeah. uh, in, in the press. You know, if Russia had gone in full full steam with its military and stuff into Ukraine. You know, there wouldn't have been any question that this was the wrong, this was an invasion type thing. And they wouldn't have had to make up all the crap that mm-hmm. they've been making up for the past year to try and uh, try and convince everybody that Russia is invading Ukraine, you know. Um, well, there was just an article that came out a couple of days ago, a statement made by, I believe he's the chief of staff in the Ukrainian government, Muzhenko. Um, and he's been in the news a couple times over the past year or so since the whole Ukraine crisis started. He was the guy earlier this year in January who said that there were no Russian troops in Ukraine, kind of, you know, against all other Ukrainian statements. And so he came out with another thing, uh, another statement in the past few days saying that 90 percent of all Ukrainian intelligence reports are bogus, mm-hmm. false. You just can't trust anything that's in it. And so that's that's really what that's really the truth of it. You know, it's probably even more than 90%, but um, all of these statements about uh, Russian invasions and Poroshenko saying something ridiculous, like there's what 80,000 Russian troops in, yeah. in, in the Donbass. It's just, it's, it's ludicrous. And even the Ukrainian chief of staff is saying it and knows it. Yeah. And yet it just keeps getting said. And it's, it's just not, it's, it's ridiculous. It's nonsense. It's absurd. Given, yeah, the thing, of course, of course, it's, it's absurd. But what people forget is that uh, a major part of war is propaganda. Mm-hmm. A prop, the prop, you can win or lose a war based on the quality or the believability of your propaganda, um, and and that's what's been been going on. And unfortunately, um, I think the U.S. has been overall losing the propaganda war because they're having to make things up from out of whole cloth, basically, mm-hmm. just fabricate things entirely. They don't even have a seed of something to really work with. So um, They can't even fake a good photograph. I mean, yeah. they'll use photographs that are two or three years old. Yeah, and I mean, as we've talked about in previous shows as well, the MH17 shoot-down was an, ex- an example of the, the lengths that these people are, are willing to go to to engage in this propaganda war. When you've got nothing to go on, when you've no, you haven't caught anybody, you haven't caught the Russians with their pants down, you haven't, you've got no hard evidence, you haven't got any uh, satellite pictures, you've got nothing to give to the press where everybody believes it. So what do you do? Well, you've got to really make it up <clears throat> out of nothing. And in that situation, you bring in your, your kind of false flag attack, effectively. MH17 wasn't a terror attack. Uh, it was uh, a well, non-terroristic false flag attack, which was basically, you know, shooting down. It was terror in a sense. Well, it was terror in a sense, but not yeah. in the traditional sense yeah. that, that we've become used to. But it was an, an example of just how crazy these people are with the way they shoot down a, a plane full of, what was it, 298, I think? Mm-hmm. 298 yeah. people, civilians, uh, just to make Putin look bad. That's kind of 
that's desperation. And that's a good thing in a certain sense. When they do things like that, it suggests not that people being shot out of a, shot down on a plane is a good thing, but to those lengths, to those extremes, to achieve their ridiculous, insane goals, um, it means that they're running out of options and the tide is turning against them. You know, and as we've said many times, when these people are, are in that that position, when they feel really pressured and that things are turning against them, they will engage in ex- increasingly extreme maneuvers and those extreme maneuvers um, increase the likelihood that they will be exposed or that their narrative that they present with their maneuver mm-hmm. it just isn't believed or isn't believable. And we've seen that with, uh, to a certain extent with MH17. Well, and we're, and we're seeing the lead up to a similar dynamic with the refugee crisis mm-hmm. where we have this public uh, this public opinion that's totally at odds with the official narrative the uh, what the what the uh, the public opinion should be and that is a threat mm-hmm. because the the propaganda isn't being totally instilled and imprinted in all these people they're mm-hmm. actually sympathizing with mm. with these poor muslims yeah you get the impression that the <clears throat> the recent and it's almost just it's just today almost that this change in government the opinion or policy towards these refugees is a, in particular the German government mm-hmm. decided today to that they would let in what was it eighty thousand or something eight hundred thousand oh eight hundred thousand yeah. for the whole year right um you get the impression that that is to a certain extent uh, as a result of public the public public opinion on I mean, it's fairly clear. It seems pretty clear what the two options are. One option is to basically close your borders and leave them all to just die and starve on a beach or mm-hmm. in, a, in a train station. I I don't think even they believe <clears throat> that they can get away with that and that there wouldn't be a public outcry. So they have to do something that's capitulated essentially to public opinion in this case. But this is just at the level of the national governments, or well, at the level of the EU. But even then, it seems like, uh, well, from what I've been reading, it seems like Germany is kind of the only country really going that far, because we've got countries like Denmark. Well, these are the statements they've made recently. They may change their tune, but Denmark has said they want to pay Turkey to halt refugees from coming over the borders. The Netherlands wants to cut off food and shelter to the refugees. Uh, Britain, in addition to Spain, France, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, Slovakia, and Hungary, pose the European Commission's recommendations for quotas, refugee quotas. Um, Hungary is building a fence on their border with Serbia to prevent um, refugees from crossing the border. Although they've, they've, back, they've backtracked from that. I have think. they now? They have, they've allowed yeah, uh, the Austrian prime minister was has been criticizing the Hungarian mm. President or president, I think, or prime minister, who um, was taking this hard line on refugees, and he has backed down. He, <clears throat> the Hungarians were not allowing the refugees to actually transit their border, but today, I think, again, yeah, they, they basically today. opened the opened the border and let them through on trains. And this is when people got all the way through Austria and then yeah, uh, into, into Germany. Germany. And they they were expecting ten thousand, but uh, eight thousand so far have been accounted for that have arrived in Germany. And again, like like you said earlier, the 
the Germans have just been um, like on the streets showing their support. Um, Germans were there to give chil uh, children toys as they come off the trains. The Red Cross tents were set up with people providing medical aid. Um, they provided interpreters to, to help the refugees when they were talking to officials to get, um, you know, registered and to go where they need to go. And um, I'm, I'm fairly confident now after seeing how when Germany says jump, everyone else in Europe says how high mm -hmm. Germany has spoken and everyone else will fall in line. Mm -hmm. Britain today has also agreed to fall in and line. So where do we think any pos potential, you know, future false flag is going to be? Um, well, it's okay. I'm betting Germany. Yeah, yeah, Germany will be will be a, a choice target for that kind of thing to right at the heart of of Europe, effectively at the economic heart, anyway. And then, um, of course, there's a, a large number of American military personnel mm -hmm. in bases in Germany. I think it's uh, sixty thousand, maybe or something like that. Um, maybe that's too many, but it's multiple tens of thousands of, of military personnel and their you know, military advisors, etc. So you can imagine how easy it is for a bunch of operatives to get in amongst that and uh, and work their magic, you know, work their de deadly magic. But the um, the other thing, the ongoing Russian propaganda that we've been speaking about, anti-Russian propaganda from the West, uh, is, is continuing, uh, has continued in the form of a story just from a few days ago that was, it was in the it was first in the Israeli newspaper Ynet, and then it was picked up by uh, the Telegraph and some other UK newspaper, all who you know backed it and, and, and claimed it was genuine. And the story was that uh, Russian troops and fighter jets were already operating in Syria, mm -hmm. attacking <clears throat> rebels and ISIS. Everybody should be happy with that if that were true, in, in support of Assad. But um, Israeli journalist claimed that he wouldn't reveal who the source was. Um, and yeah, he wouldn't even he wouldn't even verify the source or the, right something like that. Yeah, he did, like, yeah. He I, I won't even tell you if I have a source, yeah. but it's a source of some description. It may not be human. Maybe an alien told me, but um, maybe Yahweh told me, my alien god. Um, but uh, anyway, he wouldn't say who it was. But it seems to be bogus and just part of. Um, the, the same anti-Russian propaganda to try and you know turn put the pressure on, on Russia and turn people's attention, put, turn people's uh, kind of. Uh, mm. It enabled John Kerry to say today that he's concerned about reports coming out of Europe about the Russian military in Syria, mm. as if he wouldn't know one way or the other. But that's the thing. I think, <laughs> I think what they do in those situations is they get some kind of intelligence that the Russians may be planning on doing mm -hmm. something like this. So they preempt yeah. them by releasing it into the media and then creating an issue of it and saying, are you going to do this? Or sorry, are you doing this? No, we're not doing it. Are you going to do it? Because now everybody knows that you're going to do it. So you're going to think twice about doing it now, right? Because we're saying it's very bad that you would do this and you shouldn't do that. So you're not going to do that, are you? So it's a kind of a childish way of trying to uh, stop Russia from doing what it should do and wants to do. But of course, Russia has been... And just on on the Russian side, Putin himself, I mean, this was made up out of whole cloth. Putin himself, when asked about this, said, no, uh, we know that the Americans have been bombing, supposedly bombing ISIS without very much uh, effect. And he said it's too early to say that whether we would uh, even 
and would think about doing the same thing. Like options are on the table. Right. Well, yeah, but we have, he said, we have been supporting, everybody knows that we've been supporting and honouring our military contracts with, with Syria, which go back uh, five to seven years to supply them with defensive weapons like anti-aircraft or anti-missile defence uh, systems and other, you know, advice and help type of thing. Uh, they've been selling weapons to them of, of all descriptions. So, yeah, they've been supporting the Assad government. Uh, so it seems to me that um, the Russians would be fully entitled at any point in time to engage directly in uh, Syria against ISIS and why it would be a problem for the West is beyond me unless for some reason the West doesn't want ISIS to be defeated but you know that's a conspiracy theory so yeah Russia's not allowed to do it only the only the US and its allies are yeah well yeah. But this this story I it came out just a few days after other stories and it seemed to me almost a reaction to these stories that came from Syrian sources that Russia was now kind of upping its involvement in Syria militarily not to the extent of having troops on the ground but um, providing satellite intelligence, mm-hmm. um, which they hadn't done before that, and um, stationing mili- military advisors at key points in Syria, and that very may very may well all be true. Mm-hmm. And so, well, it is yeah, true. Putin said it. Yeah. So, like you're saying, huh. Joe, they just they just see where this might be might be going and yeah. preempt it by releasing this bogus story mm-hmm. about you know the air force, and they release these again grainy photos of what they say are Russian planes. You know, engaging in yeah, which you can't really see anything. No. And some Russian Russian tanker or some Russian uh, uh, vehicle, military vehicle. But that's yeah, because, well, that's well, of course, because they the, Russians, the Russians sold them. To Syria. No, that's why the reason why they're always grainy is because the Russians are still in the uh, Soviet era time zone. You <laughs> see, so everything that comes through that sort of information field is going through time. It's all about oh. thirty years outdated. Going back yeah. to, back to the eighties, yeah. So it has to take a step down in uh, in resolution, you know. No, but the other thing is that uh, just a little uh, news bite on the same theme was that uh, Moscow requested and received Athens' permission to conduct flights to transport humanitarian aid to Syria between September 1st and September 24th, most of this month, uh, according to a diplomatic source in Athens. And this is according to Russian news uh, that somebody in the Russian go- in the Greek government told the Russian media that the, the Greek government had okayed a request from Russia to fly over Greek airspace uh, to Syria to deliver humanitarian aid. Um, it seems that they want to, obviously the east uh, of the far east on the coast of Syria is still, I think, in Syrian government hands. Yeah. So that route that they would have to take, or they would have to take that route basically down over the Black Sea, over over the the, the Straits of Constantinople, Constantinople, basically over Istanbul, because uh, I think they're they're obviously allowed to. That's kind of international waters. Those straits to allow the Russians out of Black Sea. So I think they can fly over that area as well. Or they can fly over just, there's part of Greece there. So they fly over Greece and then around the Mediterranean onto the Syrian coast that way, you know, because I was thinking about why would they want to fly over Greek airspace to get to Syria. Syria is basically due south from uh, Russia or Crimea. And Greece is kind of quite a ways west. But I assume they don't want to fly over Turkey 
or certainly when they fly over Turkey, they'd be flying into the middle of Syria. So um, it's interesting that Athens, the, the Greek government has um, a part of that story was also that the uh, that the U.S. embassy had appealed to the Greek government to stop uh, or to prohibit flights of Russian aircraft um, over Greek territory. And the Greek government basically said, nah, we don't want to piss off Russia any more than we have to, and we're not going to do it just because America wants us to, So, especially for humanitarian aid. But obviously when the Russians are flying humanitarian aid or anybody's flying humanitarian aid, quote-unquote, anywhere, uh, inside a box of, you know, a box labeled medicine, you might find something other than medicine, you know. Well, to change the subject somewhat, just to come back to an earlier topic, I just had an idea. Apparently, a month or two ago, Jihadi John was on the run from ISIS. Yeah. Right. So I wonder if he might be one of those Syrian refugees. Yeah. <laughs> so he probably is, most yeah. of them, yeah. But he's he's on the radar, so I don't think. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. He's on the radar. He's a, a public face that people know, right? Yeah. So well, I don't know if someone's he's wearing a balaclava. When the time comes, he can just rap and. Well, I don't know. Yeah, he could do some really bad, fundy, fundy Muslim rap and in that way terrorize uh, European populations. You know? So, a question I want to ask is: To what extent is this an operation? with, you know, explicit planning at every step of the way. So the discussion now in Europe is to allot a quota of refugees to each country. Mm-hmm. And Australia, that other part of Europe, uh, will they actually have people among the refugees who are uh, former or current mercenary types who've been in some of their wars? Will they actually go to that extent? Or are we thinking more it's like um, well, you just it'll just, be a plausible rationale when the events happen in the future to look back and say, well, the problem is we all took on a certain number of refugees and there were these terrorists amongst them. I think you might see in the next, uh, in the near future, in the next few weeks, you know, some mention of the possibility of I mean, they've already mentioned it, but some more mention of the possibility of there being ISIS recruits amongst the refugees, or there may be some incident that brings that public awareness. And then... Well, there already has been one. Yeah. That total non-event blown up into a massive event on a train in France right. three oh, weeks yeah. ago. Um, Although that guy wasn't a refugee, was he? No, he wasn't. But uh, they said he was Moroccan descent. Now he he said, "Well, I just wanted to rob the train," and he's sticking by that story still mm-hmm. alive. Um, there, I found a couple of reports from that time, CNN, New York, and New York Times, giving this whole background spiel that kind of gives you an idea of where they want to go with this whole thing. Uh, so yeah, they talk about the bravery of the the soldiers, the war heroes. And weren't they, American, weren't they American? Or at American, least three of them? American or British, a combination of both. It's a Frenchie as well. Um, but their courage made up for another failure of surveillance and detection. They, I think they knew of the guy. They knew that he traveled to Syria. 
uh, and other countries. And then they go on to give this spiel about jihadi networks hiding among the millions of Muslim immigrants living in Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be so easy for them to get around. Flights may be secure, but rail and other transport hubs in Europe are not. There are plenty of targets and ready access to weapons such as AK-47, mm -hmm. making these acts of terrorism very easy to, carry, to, to plan and to carry out. So I think... Yeah, what they're saying there, they're saying that from, they're the, setting from, the from their own perspective. They're setting the stage for the reality of a network, because it's kind of implausible up to this point in time. Right? A network of jihadis all over Europe, no. now they have, yeah. well, there's, some, there's a new factor. There are these people who came from jihadistan, Syria and Iraq, and they're now embedded like terror cells all across the Western world, except North America. But they'll find out, they'll find some other plausible rationale for them being there. Uh, and this this talk about soft targets, it's, it's alarming how, I mean, obviously the, the New York Times is writing this, you know, with the, an air of concern for what may happen, but there's I swear, if you read some of these articles about their their fear mongering about what may come, it's it's as if it's, if it's written like a plan. This is this is how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, enhanced security and surveillance measures surveillance measures will be needed across all European cities and transport hubs. I'm reading from the New York Times here. Um, the sheer number of suspects combined with a widening field of potential targets, targets, have presented European officials with what they concede is a nearly insurmountable surveillance task. And then the French terrorism expert saying, we are now faced with unpredictable terrorism. Terrorists henceforth will be choosing soft targets, those where there is little security. That's why this guy chose a train, because there is none. I mean, and then, of course, the the noises in the media in Europe about removing the open borders agreement, the Schengen agreement. Uh, I think they will actually go for that to some extent anyway. Uh, so, yeah, this is it. This is like they have the perfect situation. Yeah, they've created the ground for it. But for, for doing a homeland security job yeah. on Europe. But it's two points. Well, first, it's just... Again, it's totally ridiculous. Any any terrorist or would-be terrorist that wants to be successful is going to choose a soft target. I mean, the idea of terrorists picking the hardest target possible, going through you know endless airport security to to potentially kill a bunch of people is just nonsense. When they could conceivably kill way more by just going to a football game or blowing up a bomb in in the line to check in at, a, at an airport. So, mm -hmm. I mean, of course, soft targets are going to be a target, but they aren't. They haven't been because it's just, it's total nonsense. It's fake. So this whole soft target thing is, it looks like just a setup to do this Homeland Security thing to, to close borders, increase surveillance and et cetera. But on the other hand, going back to something you said earlier, Neil, about the, you know, what's really going on, what's the plan. I think that the, the easiest or the most plausible thing that they could do is embed some ISIS recruits among these refugees. And that way, when something happens in the future, they can say, oh, well, look, it was this guy and he, he was registered in this country on this day and we've got this paper trail for him. 
But then again, you don't actually need uh, a real ISIS terrorist to do that. Of course not. It's, it's simple, and they've done it before. You don't have to ha- actually have the real person. You can just take care of that that name, the person attached to that name, and you've got some guy in a hood that works for someone in the intelligence services that does this thing, gets away with it, and they just say they killed the guy, blah, blah, blah. They make up the whole story from there, mm-hmm. but they've got they've established the ground for the plausible narrative underneath that. Mm-hmm. So either way, it's um, I think it's kind of irrelevant either way whether it is whether it is an act- actually a guy from Syria. Mm-hmm. Could very well be, but in the end, they get the same out of it. Mm-hmm. with or without him. Yeah. Earlier this year, there were British tabloids screaming headlines like this. ISIS, well, this is from March, Daily Mail. ISIS will carry out 9-11 in Europe within two years, and fanatics are recruiting migrants in Libya with the promise of white virgins, claims Gaddafi's exile cousin and former special envoy. That's title. There's another one from February. ISIS threatens to send 500,000 migrants to Europe as a psychological weapon in chilling echo of Gaddafi's prophecy that the Mediterranean will become a sea of chaos. Hmm. Uh, is that true? Well, well, that's, but that's, we talked about that in the previous show where they had mentioned that we on, on, I don't know, it was maybe four or five months ago when that story came out, we talked about that. ISIS claiming that when the, when the migrant crisis was kind of like beginning or there was a lot of reports of Libyan, um, Libyan refugees dying in boats, except this has been going on for, I mean, it's been in the news for at least a year. So it was about six months ago that they, uh, that ISIS, they had ISIS, or ISIS come out with this story that they're going to send, uh, that, that not only were they going to send um, their own operatives to carry the attacks in Europe, but they were going to, ISIS was going to send the refugees. Mm-hmm. ISIS was going to drive the people out of Libya into Europe, yeah, and and as a, I think they described it at the time, supposedly ISIS described it at the time at the time as a kind of asymmetrical warfare, going to flood Europe with refugees. So it was, I mean, the fact now that this is actually happening, people could well, people a, could conclude that well, wow, ISIS is really they're doing well, what no, they said they were yeah. going to do. That they're in control of the situation. The, ISIS is real, you know. At the time, I was thinking this was uh, Western intel opportunistically taking advantage of the reality that m- there were a lot of people coming to Europe mm-hmm. to scare people in Europe. Yeah, to blame it on ISIS. But if you take those headlines and replace ISIS with CIA threatens to send 500,000 migrants to Europe as a psychological weapon, this is what I'm getting here. To what extent is this a managed operation? Because there's, one, there's an idea that basically the U.S. controls the part of the world they're coming from. It wouldn't be hard to set them off on a certain route rather than other routes. Or is it simply that Europe's a migrant because they want to come to a, uh, a more prosperous part of the world? I say it's been managed to a certain extent, but I mean... It was predictable. It's, it's, it's obviously uh, when you've destroyed... When you've subjected a country like Syria with 25 million people or whatever to uh, four years of civil war, you're going to have refugees. You have refugees. When you start a war, you have refugees from the country that started the war. Right, but in Palestine for 60 years, no, but those refugees have sat, been kept contained around the borders of Israel slash Palestine. Yeah, but the U.S. Yeah, but that's because Israel controls Palestine 100%. And who doesn't control well, nobody the can, Turkish border 100%? Well, yeah, well, well, the Turks do, yeah. 
but I mean, again, it's like like we were talking about. Um, uh, and well, when we we're talking about the show we we're talking about earlier about the uh, sea routes. That's why the sea routes are used, and that's why the sea routes are are, are being seen as, uh, are we're seeing the sea routes as the main uh, the main way that, the, that these refugees are coming to Europe. That's why that's how they've come from Libya, and that's how they've come from Syria. You can't stop Syrian people living in Syria or on the coast of Syria from getting on a boat coming to Greece. Okay, now let's go back to the question of how these mercenaries got into that part of the world in the first place, including the teenage brides from Denver and Calgary and Sydney Mm -hmm. and Vienna over the last three years. You need help to get there, and I'm thinking you need help to get back out. We're talking about refugees, though, here. Refugees here. But to create this mess in in Syria, there had to be Western intel oversight of recruiting and getting these people to the region in the first place, the the mercenaries I'm talking about, the foreigners. Well, but that's a bigger... We're not just talking about a handful of people from Australia or... uh, Yeah, I mean, we're talking about most of of the Syrian uh, rebels, so-called rebels, are... You know, people from all over the Middle East, from the Maghreb, who are uh, have been there for a long time, for 20, 30 years, and are basically have been used. You go back to Afghanistan, there are basically fundamentalist jihadis, and you have to go back into a long history there of of trying of, of of seeing how um, fundamentalist Islam came into being and how the creation of this fundamentalist jihadi ideology uh, came about and how it effectively made a kind of a, a proxy army that Saudi or, you know, Gulf, Gulf monarchies in league with Western powers, particularly the U.S., used them as, as effectively as mercenaries. But here we're talking about, you know, tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands of people over the course of, of, of a, couple, a few decades, you know. Uh, so from amongst them, yeah, you, it's very easy to pick a few and have your, you know, the people your the people that you're handling, for example, the jihadis that are being handled by your agents, or whatever, to order a few cells of, of kind of people to go to Europe and carry out some kind of a terror attack. Mm. Um, that's the way they do it. And, and there's a there's a blending of fan, you know, fantasy and reality to a certain extent. There are the real and the unreal. These people are real people. They're nuts. They're crazy. In the same way that there's uh, the fundy Christians in America and elsewhere are real people and have really crazy fundy ideas, you know the white supremacists in America are kind of crazy people. Here you get into a problem of human beings and human nature, and how not everybody is is rational <laughs> in the sense that you might think. And there are high functioning crazy people all over the world uh, who have attached themselves to certain ideologies and. Um, and yeah, so those people—they're—they're they're the ones who you can use to. Um, I mean, we go back to 9/11. Where did they get the the the, the so-called 9/11 hijackers from? You know, did, well, mean, they were you, cousins uh, of Saudi royals. They right, were all right, part of the in crowd. Right, exactly. You know, so in that case, they were kind of manipulated patsies who who knows what they thought they were doing. Um, but that's always the case with these intelligence agencies. You never know uh, who you're working for. And what you're really going to be doing, you know, there's some people who just don't care. You know, some there's a lot of people who 
are just of that mindset where they are they're, they have a fundamentalist mindset type thing. Of course, they're, they're in for their own reasons. There are understandable reasons why they're in it. They're getting power, they get shoot guns, they're getting to feel important and stuff. But they're fundamentally naive people and easily manipulated. There are very few of them. Um, you know, they're fighting for a cause. I mean, history, human history is littered with uh, wars and conflicts that were for a, a, a ostensibly or objectively kind of ridiculous cause. You know, hmm. we've talked about we've talked about we've talked about it before, where people, um, you know, you have had the wars in the past where um, people who like the color blue fought people who like the color red because we're blue and they're red. Let's let's kill them. You know, um, or all of the people. I mean, but religion, religion is the most the the, the most basic um, ideology that people ad- adhere to. And internalize and will actually go to war for you know um unfortunately, people are very easily manipulated into picking up a gun and going and fighting someone else, so it's not that strange, so we have to be careful about the whole thing is manipulated or manufactured or uh, controlled in a certain way you know um I was just wondering to what extent is is Washington giving Europe something to think about here because I was looking back and you know, remember what Wesley Clark said? I mean, th- that would fly in the U.S. because I mean, with the countries has said no. We said more recently about the need to set up internment camps in the U.S. and Europe, and I was thinking, and Europe, that'll never fly there. And now, huh? It might. Well, with, once uh, there've been a few. Yeah. Incidents. Once people have been traumatized, you can get them to do anything. You know. I mean, it's just it's a it's a very depressing picture of of human nature under the control of schizoidal type psycho people who will promote uh, an ideology and in some way have it anchor in the psyche because psyches of ordinary people. I mean, you know, how many people died? There was a million people died over a few days in the First World War, a million French and British uh, soldiers who ran over, over the top at the Somme. I think it was a, I think it was a million uh, were just gunned down by the Germans. Uh just ran out of the trenches into bullets and they were doing that why because well we're british and french and the germans are, are evil or that's what we've been told so let's get them let's go and all die for the cause how is that any different from uh the the isis ideology that a lot of a lot of people a lot of muslims have apparently uh adhered to you know it's not Getting people to pick up a gun and go and so, actively commit suicide is apparently not hard if we look at history. So David Cameron has a point then when he says that this is uh, ISIS is wor- are worse than the Nazis. Uh, ISIS is the same as the Nazis. Uh, of course, you know if you're a Nazi at the time, the the British and the French and the Americans were the Nazis. Nazis in quote. You know, you have to look at it from the other perspective, from the ordinary person who's who's the guy with the red flag who likes red, blue is evil. And the guy with the blue flag thinks that the red red flag is evil. And, um, you know, they're both right, you know, in, in their own heads. They're both convinced. And, and Yeah, but both of them are crazy, you know, and both of them are being manipulated. Mm-hmm. So um, there is past precedent for large numbers of people being moved in order to set up a situation of tension that justified a war 
mm-hmm. thinking of Vietnam, where millions in the north were moved south, mm-hmm. creating chaos. And previously, the British did that when they created this country called Pakistan mm-hmm. and switched a million one way and a million the other way mm-hmm. to create the first quote unquote Islamic state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's not it's not outside the realm of possibility. However, I take your point. Um, yeah, but they're not managing a million people. Like they're not, you know, they're not individual. You know, that kind of thing. You just you just create the conditions, and then it'll take take root and take hold, and it'll it'll run some course. The 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 problem with ISIS, for example, is not that ISIS exists. It's not strange that ISIS exists as a fundamentalist kind of belief system because you know every country in the world has had a fundamentalist belief system when they <clears throat> when they went to war against other human beings for no good reason. They their, their good reason was some fundy idea that that was that was technically insane. The problem with ISIS is that they're just a small group of uh, these fundies that shouldn't be significant at all, but have have been allowed to be significant because they're useful. They're useful to the West uh, in pursuing its foreign policy in the Middle East, and they're useful to Saudi Arabia, which is largely the country that is funding and supporting them and arming them and making sure that they continue on. I mean, no one seems to be asking that question either, is how ISIS are able to uh, win so many battles and hold out against all of these much larger forces against them. How are they even able to fight and win ground against the Syrian government? The Syrian government is being supported uh, at this point probably entirely by the Russian government. The Russian government, Russian military has a lot of resources. Uh, you know, on in any, in any normal situation or all things being equal, the Syrian government would have dispatched and been able to defeat these rebels, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, in a matter of a few weeks or a few months. It should, but it's been going on for, for more than four years. Uh, obviously, ISIS is being supported by a modern, wealthy, well-equipped, well-armed uh, patron. Who is that? It's Saudi Arabia and the US. So, that's, if there's a question over ISIS and what they're all about and, and, and what they're doing and why they exist and blah, 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 just that's the answer. They exist because they're being allowed and helped to exist because it supports uh, American or Western agenda in the Middle East, which is more or less the same as Saudi agenda in the Middle East. And to go a bit deeper, what people also don't realize and don't ask a question about and don't see is that ISIS is the the epitome, it's like the archetype or the manifestation of the true American mentality, the American establishment, like mm. the Western the Western mentality. That's it. Mm. And so people look at ISIS and they're horrified and and who wouldn't be? But what they they don't take the extra that logical leap to, to realize that well what you're horrified at is really what your leaders are all about. That defines you know, that defines them. It's not a leap. Every terrorist group since in the Muslim terrorist group since the nineteen nineties. Yeah. They've all all their bank accounts are in London. I mean you don't need a leap. The paper trail is there. It's been written about. Well it's a leap for, for people who aren't aware of any of this. Okay. Yeah. To understand that. Yeah. Uh, people don't understand, you know, the way the world works. They don't understand uh, what the U.S. and Western countries are about, because they haven't looked at the history of it, and their ordinary people are hopelessly, hopelessly naive about the way the world works and what governments, Western governments, do and have done. Uh, and all they have to do is look at history and see mm-hmm. a precedent that goes back several hundred years. And 
more people read about that than than are than analyze the current situation. And the people who do read about the history and this to a large extent, large extent official history as well, for some reason they don't apply it to uh, modern politics. They look at politics and the government the policies, foreign policy, etc., from two or three hundred years ago. You know, like British foreign policy. Well, that has no relevance. Two or three hundred years. Ago. Apparently, there's no relevance, but. <clears throat> Uh, obviously it does because nothing's really changed and they're doing exactly the same kind of thing that they did then. Um, well, I think they're, just, they're just better at covering up. They're aware today of uh, the uh, the kind of information problem in that the free flow or spread of information is is possible today when it wasn't 200 years ago. Um, so they need to <clears throat> factor that in to how they go about what they've always gone about. Well, and they factor in just normal human psychology and the way people's minds work. And part of that is just this compartmentalization where a person can read a book about, you know, about history 200 years ago where you see the same dynamic, but when it's, it's, again, it's a leap for them to make the connection to what's going on today. And part of that has to do with the, the image that the media presents and exactly. the politicians present because Propaganda. everything is presented in a way in with framed in a certain way within certain conditions that the connection isn't obvious. It's not, it's not right on the surface. The connection isn't explicitly made. And there's a, there's a clip that we've got um, from Daniel Kahneman who wrote uh, thinking fast and slow. And he describes one of the cognitive errors that's, that's just natural to, to the way humans think and he calls it, uh, what you see is all there is. So we'll, we'll play you this describe a, and talk uh, about it a bit. a mental error called um, Wyseati. Have I pronounced that correctly? Yeah, um, uh, you can pronounce it anyway. No, well, with your word. I, I call it, it Wyseati. What you see is all there is. What's wrong with that? What it does, uh, what you see is all there is, is, is that we tend not to look for what we don't see. So uh, if we see a story, you know, some elements of the story, we construct the best story we can out of those elements. And we're not really fully aware of what we don't know. So, you know, an example I give of Wiziati is if I tell you, well, uh, here is that leader of the nation and, and she's intelligent and strong. Now, if I ask you at this point, is she a good leader? You have an answer. She's yes. a good leader. Yeah. But now, you know, the third word could be corrupt. So I haven't told you anything about her character. You, you were not waiting. You, were ta- you took the information that you had and you made the best story possible out of it. That's the way our mind works. So we construct stories out of evidence that is very slight, very partial, could be biased. Uh, but we we make the best story possible. That's the way System One is wired. And so, of course, apply that to just anything that you read in the news. I think this is this goes away to explaining this change in public opinion that we see over months. The change from what we discussed earlier about the the well apathy and at the same time racism, bigotry against Muslims, and then. Because that's all you see. That's that's well, all it's presented, right? Well, what this tells me is that Joe, you suggested that public opinion is having an effect in Europe. Hence, mm-hmm. a policy decision by Germany and the other powers. Okay, all right. But well, we're looking to do something about it. But what it tells me is that 
it became enough of a mediation. Therefore, they saw it. Mm-hmm. What you see is all there is. And now Germany must react. Yeah. And then we're going to see it again, because then the next time there's, this fa- there's a false flag in Europe, then that's all that people are going to see again. So they're going to see this image of these terrorist refugees and without any context, without any additional historical information or just information on what the actual graphics are, what's really going on, that's the image that people see. That's all they see. Mm-hmm. And they form the best story possible from that, which is that the refugees are terrorists and we made a big mistake and now we've got to do something about it. Yeah. Although there's another aspect to um, another aspect to kind of terror attacks, you know. They're traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, they traumatize people and they put people... Um, in a particular state, in a particular mental state, mm-hmm. where they are open to suggestion that comes immediately afterwards, and they really can internalize that suggestion, and, and it becomes a belief for people. So, in terms of actual psychological trauma to people, that's that's very useful uh, from these power powers that be uh, perspectives. You know, there's a I was reading something a little while ago about <clears throat> um, how easy it is. Uh, to effectively, you know, program someone. When we think of mind programming and stuff as someone being, you know, having voices projected into their head or sitting in front of a hypnotist who kind of like, you know, holds up a wrist, uh, a pocket watch and and manipulates them in that way or puts them into a a trance and then gives them suggestions, blah, 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 blah. But um, I was reading something, <clears throat> I can't remember exactly where it was from, but it was some, some guy saying that uh, it can be as easy as, for example, planning to bump into someone. Or bump, in, bump into someone around uh, in the street. You know, so you see someone walking along the street and you kind of uh, go along and bump into them quite kind of hard. And when as soon as he kind of turns around and looks to see you know, what happened, you just say something like, something completely uh, a complete non sequitur, something completely illogical. Uh for example, you bump into someone like that. And you pretend you knew you know them. I think that's what you No, saying. well if you bump into them and, and as soon as they kinda of came to their senses you'd say uh you'd look at your watch and say yes. it's actually uh it's four thirty exactly and then you just walk away. And uh, and then the guy would plant the suggestion to him that he well, had asked for the time. Right. Well no well it's just a non no No, not even that. It's it's just bumping into someone and then saying something to them that is completely unexpected and out of sync with what actually happened uh-huh. because what someone expects is when you bump into them and you both kind of pick yourselves up you say oh sorry but you know no, the normal yeah. response but if you bump into someone like that and then say and give them something as if that, that they didn't ask for or just doesn't make any sense in this case the example he gave was as if yeah as if he had asked for the time but he hadn't it doesn't make any sense to the person that you just bumped into not only that but you tell them it's exactly half past four and you walk on and then he stops and thinks and is confused and looks at his own watch and it's two o'clock. Uh, you know, so that kind of, me- it's, you know, can up as messing with someone's head in a kind of abrupt, somewhat traumatic, um, in this example, a small, small traumatic way. Uh, then he said, the guy said that he actually did this. And that he, so he did the bumping into the, it's 4.30 exactly and walking on. And he was able to observe that half a block further down when he had kept walking, he turned around and the guy was still standing there looking at him in complete confusion. And it's in that state of confusion that someone else would come along and tell the person something 
that they should do or need to do or was a good idea for them to do. So, you know, that, it's that, and they would more readily accept. They would be more readily, yeah. uh, they're much more, uh, yeah, willingly accept any kind of mission in that state, in that shocked, confused, with their mind that effectively being kind of like, you know. That's exactly what goes on day in, day out with the media. It, it yeah. doesn't inform, it plants suggestions. Post, yeah, but that's post-hypnotic But just getting, yeah, exactly, it's, yeah, it's post-hypnotic suggestions and, and the process of hypnotizing someone momentarily and hypnotizing maybe isn't the best word. It's a process of putting... Or traumatizing. Of, dis, of discombobulating someone's yeah. rational mental thinking process. It's kind of like opening a kind of... Where someone is, is just totally confused. Their brain has been kind of put into neutral. It's out of gear. They don't know what just happened. Um, but that has achieved society-wide on a social, uh, broad social basis to, to millions of people uh, by events like 9-11. It's what happened on 9-11. And the suggestions, the information, the facts that they're given, the authoritative statements that they hear immediately after that or for a certain period of time after that is something that they will all internalize. And Osama bin Laden. It'll become, Osama bin Laden. Right, we have to invade, blah, blah, blah. And um, so in the context of these, these refugees, if, if what we're suggesting comes to pass, we don't know if it will, but it's just a, a, a theory um, based on having observed uh, these kind of goings on on the world stage for quite a long time. Um, if there is some kind of a terror attack that is blamed on ISIS amongst the refugees in, in Europe, then uh, people in Europe kind of traumatized uh, en masse by that would be quite open to the suggestion that these people need to be put in camps or something like that, something that they formerly would not have um Accepted. So we could envision a situation here where from one day to the next, quite literally, mm-hmm. you could have people uh, offering teddy bears and food to the refugees. And the next day, they could be clamoring for and be put in concentration camps. Mm-hmm. And that's the depressing part of the way this world operates under the rule of psychopaths and power and the manipulations that they use on people. Is The depressing part is, is just how susceptible uh, ordinary human beings are to being manipulated and to doing things that ordinarily they would never do. Well, there's another example that came to mind of just weird psychological tricks like that. I can't remember if it, which book it was in that I read this. I don't think it was Kahneman, but it might have been. But the example that they gave was that uh, of standing in a queue or a line at a store for whatever and how if you want to butt in that line, just butt in and you know just go ahead of a bunch of people, all you've got to do, and this might have been in the context of Canadians, but I don't know, all you've got to do is give a reason. And it doesn't matter what the reason is, and it can be totally uh, nonsensical. Yeah. Be, oh, you guys, oh, can I, can I just butt in line here? I've only got a quarter in my pocket or something. It just has to be a reason, and it doesn't matter if it has anything to do with anything that's going on or anything – specific to the context that you're in, to the situation that you're in. You just have to give a reason and people will be confused because it's a total non sequitur mm-hmm. and they'll just go along with it. And so it's a pretty extreme example, but again, we, you can see that in, in the news, how all they have to do is give a reason and they, they come up with some pretty plausible reasons, um, even if they're totally not based on any facts whatsoever, but at least it's a reason. 9-11, 
oh, reason, oh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Afghanistan, Iraq. And there doesn't have to be any logical link between the problem and the solution, but there's a reason for it. Right, any reason will do, yeah. yeah. In in that state, yeah, people will... Yeah, it seems that, that's shocking. That's momentarily... momentarily um, you know, derailing the brain function, people's brain function effectively, even if only for a short period of time, is ne- is necessary mm-hmm. and used to to program people, to mind program people. So, <laughs> yeah, cool to some people, I guess. But... Yeah. Uh, Joe mentioned earlier that the strategy, perhaps, behind the whole Ukraine. To counterattack by Russia, and then MH17 may have been a play that was concerned primarily with uh, Eurasian integration, Eurasian integration, preventing that. Um, from what I've seen in the last few weeks, and I guess going back to the Greek crisis, I'm I think they're overplaying their hand. I don't think they need to. They have Europe safely locked down. Yeah, by now. But now, after doing what, after doing what they've done over the past uh, couple of years, you know, or longer really, because it really goes back to the the Iraq War and uh, the whole Saddam Hussein business, you know. Um, I think, um, I mean, I've, most people know that the Iraq invasion was about oil and securing, getting Iraq's oil resources, but it seems it's possible or it seems that there's there's something more to it in the sense that um, during the whole sanctions era against uh, Saddam during the 90s and leading up to 2003 when the sanctions were uh, the sanctions were dropped I think for a short period of time but during that period um, Saddam Hussein the Iraqi government had denied American companies any contracts any oil contracts in Iraq and here we're talking about 20% of the oil's reserves. So the Americans were kind of cut out of Iraq, which is one of the reasons, as most people are aware, that the U.S. invaded Iraq. But the people who who had the lion's share of the Iraqi oil contracts were European countries, particularly Germany. Uh, when the U.S. invaded Iraq, it was without the agreement or consent of Germany and France in particular. Uh, and it was because both of those countries knew that that would be the end of their uh, oil contracts. It would all go to U.S. companies. And I think behind that, they may have the U.S. may have also realized that this kind of a, of a cozy oil deal between major the two major European countries or EU countries, Germany and France, and Iraqi oil would have was encouraging and was bringing closer the day when you would have a more full-scale or tighter um, EU-Russian integration. That's the, where it was going, looking at... Um, I mean, this is what we're talking about here is that the U.S. perspective on the world after the end of the Cold War, that, okay, Russia's been defeated, the Soviets have been destroyed, whatever, the Soviet Union has been destroyed, it's in tatters, you know, we now rule the world. No, they wanted access to Russian resources. They tried throughout the 90s to do that. They weren't able to do it. 1999 came along, Putin came into power, and and things changed. That was the end of uh, U.S. hopes for access 
to Russian oil and for getting it all, basically. And uh, at that point, when they realized that that's the way the wind was blowing, their main priority then at that point in, the, let's say, in the late 90s became, we have to make sure that Russia and Europe do not in any way become a single economic block because the resources and the, the population, the resources and the power in that kind of a configuration of a Euro, Eurasian configuration would have been, uh, it would have been impossible for the U.S. to compete with that. And it was the end of the U.S. as the, the global hegemon. So I think everything we've seen since then has been fundamentally about, at the deepest level, has been about, um, at least at the deepest political, geopolitical level, has been about uh, driving a wedge between Russia and Europe. Uh-huh. The Iraq War. It was a it was a part of the Iraq invasion. A part of it was part of nine eleven. Part of the Iraq invasion and the Afghan invasion, and everything that has come to pass since then. Uh, it's been about maintaining a hold on power. Why? Because you know the people who rule the U.S. are the center of evil in this world, or the U.S. is the center of evil in terms of the power structure in the U.S. The center of evil, and they want to hold on to that because they've been in that position for quite a long time. They've set it up the way they want to set it up. They have the resources to do what they want to do with the world. And they don't want any, ultimately, the fate of humanity hangs in the balance. They believe that, let's say at the deepest level again, they believe that they uh, have a have a job or a, a plan, uh, a goal to achieve for pretty much all of humanity. And they're in a position to achieve it. Any upset in that is kind of catastrophic because it could go the wrong way. And here we're talking about other things that we don't usually talk about on this show and stuff, you know, at a kind of even higher level or whatever you want to call it. But uh, people who know what we're talking about know what we're talking about. Anyway, let's get back to basics. Well, just first of all, what do you think of France and Germany's take on the Minsk agreements and their at least verbal support for implementation is it all lip service or what's going on there they are doing as much as they possibly can to not get 100% screwed over by having to do what the US tells them they're just trying to find a little bit of wiggle room here and they're kind of appealing in, in that example you gave in the Minsk, agreeing with the Minsk uh, agreement or promoting the Minsk agreement they're kind of saying you know can we just not do that, please. Just I will do everything else you want us to do. Just can we just maybe not f it up totally for ourselves here, you know? So I think that's that's what we see all the time. I mean, they're so muted, they're so meek yeah. in, in their in the words that they say when they when there's any subtle hint of disagreement with anything, you know. They're very like it's they're very mealy mouthed and kind of like humble about it, you know. They're like kind of like. Oliver Twist coming up and asking for, can I have some more, please? You know, and then getting beaten and saying, get out of here, boy. How dare you? Uh, it's pathetic, you know. And, you know, I don't know. We've talked about it a little bit before, but what hold uh, the U.S. or the people in power over there seem to have or what hold they must have over, if any. And this is assuming that the US, the EU is not, is really wouldn't be doing what it's doing if it wasn't uh, being told to do it by the U.S. 
But if that's the case, then there must be some kind of, uh, I mean, we've talked about, it's been in the news, you get little hints of it, of what might lie beneath in terms of the NSA spying on Merkel mm. and we assume they're spying on everybody else and what information they have. And it's pretty pathetic as well. You know, this is another pathetic or really not pathetic, but depressing aspect of human nature is that once people are in positions of power like Merkel and other heads of state, they like that power. Uh, and it's not just a matter of them. They're in a bind, really, because it's not just a matter of them, you know, leaving power and, you know, being wealthy and going off and still being an advisor and being respected and stuff. The threat that's hanging over their heads in this kind of blackmail situation is, is that they would be discredited. They would be, their reputation would be tarnished and it would be a real fall from grace. It wouldn't just be, I'm no longer the Chancellor of Germany or I'm no longer the President of France. It would be more, you are now uh, a public pariah type thing. You know, you're, you're, you've been exposed as having engaged in A, B, C vices and uh, nobody wants to talk to you anymore. And those kind of people, that's, they're willing to do a lot to avoid that. So it's not just about them losing an election. It's about them losing their reputation. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. likes to hold those people who are in positions of power, likes to keep them there and hold them there in that way because, you know, well, we've got them. They're popular. We can, we can massage the public kind of, their public perception and stuff and, and keep them uh, in power, keep them as a strong leader in that country and therefore doing what we want and able to do what we want, you know. Um, you know, Merkel has the support of, most uh, most Germans, you know, even through the whole Greek crisis and stuff, it didn't cause you know, a lot of Germans were not happy with with uh, the way Greece was being treated primarily by the Germans. But you know, nobody got there was no coup, there was no revolution, no no Germans rose up and said enough is enough, you know. So obviously those, you know, the, the, the Merkel and Merkel, I think Merkel is talking about you know going on for. She could go on for another forty years or something, you know. I mean, she'll be there, and, and that's the way, you know. If you can, if you can have that, if the U.S. can have a leader in Europe of, of the most powerful country in Europe in that position, where they're, you know, they have popular support and you know they're fairly stable, uh, then you keep them that way, you know. There may even be a case where Merkel's being told, "No, you're not leaving." When Merkel says, "Listen, this is all too much. I don't like being blackmailed. Can I just go?" No, you can't go. You can't even resign. If you resign, we'll expose you. We'll expose you, and you will not be able to just retire with all your, with all your gazillions of, of euros, and become a, an elder stateswoman who gives talks for a hundred grand a, a go. You'll be, you know, you'll have to, I don't know, you have to go and live in a in a hut in the Alps, uh, to uh, to hide from the public shame that we will heap upon you. Tony Blair obviously was a very, very good boy. Mm. He's done spectacularly well. They, I don't know if he attended, but they invited him to Beijing for the 70th anniversary military parade the Chinese had at the end of the great anti-fascist war against Japan. Yeah. Well, I think he's making deals, you know. He, he's focusing mostly these days on making as much money as he can. And uh, so he's willing to kind of like sell. Well, he already sold his soul, so he doesn't have anything to sell except his, you know, his his contacts and the influence he can pull in whatever areas. So probably the Chinese are happy to do deals with him as long as they're on the level type thing, you know. 
and Blair's happy to do some deals as long as he gets a crap load of money for it, you know. But you could see how he sold his soul back at, shortly after he got elected in 97. New Labour and stuff. There were talks between then and the end of the, end of the 90s with the US and stuff and he just, he bought the he bought the whole deal, you know, he just swallowed the whole lot and said, yeah, I'm on board and he just became... Well, he he sold his soul in the early 90s when the former leader of the Labour Party died somewhat suspiciously. Who, Robin Cook? No, John Smith. Yeah. Heart attack, drops dead. Blair comes in with Mandelson and Brown mm. and they completely changed the Labour Party yeah. constitution. It's not, I don't think it's... Yeah, it's not so and much that he sold his soul. Available. He, he always had potential. Yeah. I think he always had the potential to be a, a slime ball. He was a he was a creature in the making. He just needed some grooming and Yeah. What about that creature over in Canada? Stephen Harper. You got elections coming up. Yeah. And he's another guy that uh, probably didn't have a soul to sell in the first place, but he's going along with the plan very nicely. And well, I mean I can't imagine. Well, I probably can't imagine another term of Stephen Harper as prime minister, but he's just. Uh, I mean, it's he's the kind of leader that that makes you ashamed to be from the country that he runs, mm-hmm. and there there are plenty of those around the world these days. But um, yeah. just the and the fact that he's he's even uh, a viable candidate uh, with the, all the corruption scandals and just the fact that he has, that he's a total non-entity. I mean, mm. he, he doesn't have any charisma. He's not no, really impressive. And anyway, even if he no. was like a, a good demagogue, at least it'd be something to kind of give him credit for, but he's just, it's horrible. It's kind of like Bush, you know, although Bush was even worse because he was down on the idiot scale, you know, but at he least Bush idiot. was funny because he had some right. personality quirks. Well, he was funny in the sense that you could, you could kind of like laugh at, laugh at him and deride him and stuff because he did make mistakes all the time, but mm-hmm. you could also hate him for, cause he was a, a warmonger, a psycho, you know? Um, but at least there was something strong about him in Bush's case. He was uh, strongly on the idiot mm-hmm. end of the scale. Then you get the people in the middle who are just banal and just, mm-hmm. you know, repeat this, spew this kind of, um, you know, in, in their in their boring, monotonous kind of way, yeah. expressionless way, you know, they, they, they spout this kind of warmongering rhetoric and, rhetoric and stuff. And they're the ones who really annoy you, you know, because um, there's nothing to them. There's nothing very evil or, or very, uh, well... They're, just they're totally, never going to be good, like, but there's nothing even very evil about them. They're know? just totally neutral. The yeah. thing about this guy... Banality is, of evil. Yeah. Is that there's there's nothing to him one way or the other. I mean, when you look at what he actually does, you get the you get the, the signs that he is evil. But just looking at him personally, there's just no one there. Yeah. And he's, it's just like looking at a cardboard figure with a, a voice coming out of it. Yeah, it's horrible. We have um, Kent on the line. All right. Hi, Kent. What's going on, Kent? Yeah. How you doing? Um, yeah, just uh, very briefly, you touched on uh, something that's always amused me. When they, they've been having this investigation over in England about uh, the, the Iraqi war, and it just never seems to end, you know. But I remember that they come upon the, um, Blair was down at the Crawford Ranch with uh, Georgie Bush, 
and they went into the apparently they they were together alone, no age, no nothing, and there was, there was like a big mystery about what they want to know what was going on there. And I think that was the deal where George Bush sort of um, told Tony that uh, opened up you know Pandora's you know opened up the treasure chest to him and showed him all the riches he could uh, was coming his way as long as he joined the club. And I I think so. I just wanted to comment about that. I think that was. There was, you know, I think that's what happened there. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the point where Georgie, Georgie W, told Blair what, what Georgie W had been told to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. He brought him, uh, brought him into the second level of management or something. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree with you yeah. there. So, so. All right, I yeah. just had that observation. All right, all right. Thanks. All right, Kent. Thanks for your call. Bye bye. Okay. Yeah. Bye. Yeah, that's that's the other thing. It just brings up an interesting point that's been it just uh, comes to mind every now and again about how people actually believe that the president of America, for example, um, or most other countries in the West, anyway, decides anything. Have a clue about what's going. It's so it's so self-evident that they cannot possibly be the decider on really anything, you know? Some of them maybe have a speciality in, like, they may be a lawyer. They may have been a lawyer or something. They may have some law learning. Uh, so they may be able to apply that a little bit in some specific area of probably domestic or maybe a little bit of foreign policy. But in terms of actually, I mean, the U.S. is like this massive corporation, multinational, global corporation, that has branches everywhere in the world and tentacles everywhere in the world. And they're doing all sorts of very complicated, different uh, things in terms of their, their policies and their strategies and their activities in specific countries and dealing with particular governments and other intel agencies and stuff. It's so you can imagine how massively complicated it is in terms of, and, and the way that the whole U.S. Uh, intelligence structure seeks massive amounts of information and tries to digest digest it and then figure out what to do in terms of running the world. Some guy's going to come in who's just been brought up through the, the political kind of chain, you know, wet behind the ear, stick him in the White House, and he's going to start making decisions. Yeah, uh, in uh, that country in, uh, what's that continent? Africa? Yeah. that What's the name of that country? Uh, yeah. Uh, I can't pronounce that. But uh, <laughs> in there, I want our guys to do this with that leader guy. They have a leader, right? Well, what? Okay, warlord, the black guy, the the black warlord. I want what needs to be done there is that. Oh, fuck it. Uh, I mean, you can imagine that, like, uh, Mr. President, just read this, Mr. President. What are you trying to say? What I mean is that I have no clue what's going on here, and I feel completely incapable of making any decisions whatsoever because I, I just got here. What the hell? What do you want me to say? Well, yeah, we want, that's what we. So we. I'm glad you came to that this, that conclusion yourself, Mr. President, because that's what we're going to tell you. <laughs> just read what we give you. There's. I mean, just think of yourself. You know who the Queen of England is, right? All Americans know who the Queen of England is, Mr. President. You know Elizabeth, the Queen. You know what she does. That's what you do. Just think of yourself as a queen. You probably are one anyway, but that's what goes on. Yeah, and it's so obvious. Totally. Well, it's it's written explicitly in the memoirs of people who are. White House chief of staff or in some way a functionary in the White House proper, these guys who become president do not 
go out and play a round of golf unless it's been decided for them. Yeah, well, it's for the media. Mr. President, we need to make it look, remind people that you're this relaxed guy who hasn't, uh, you know, likes to play golf. So will you go and play some golf? Indeed. Uh, we have another caller, Jonathan uh, from Tampa Bay. I think Jonathan's been on the show before. Uh, let's just go ahead and say hello to Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Hey, how are y'all doing? And uh, Pretty good. Good. Anyway, um, you know, you know, um, I'm 51, and uh, what's interesting about my life is uh, I was born one week before the John F. Kennedy assassination. And you know what's what's just it just freaks me out. It's just so wild. Is that this was just this was a coup in broad daylight, and how um, and and one could argue whether it was the CIA, this that you know. It was just so obvious that there was not a thorough investigation. And then the mainstream personalities and media, uh, the, the head of the Democratic Party, the, how, how all of these forces of the status quo just shut down real, authentic inquiry into that. You follow me? And yeah, well, it, just, it, just say- blows me, it just blows me away. It's just why. Wow. You mean and, the media um, and the well, kind the of whole, Justice Department and all that? Power, well, the whole power structure from the academia to, you know, wherever across the entire status quo, it's just, it, it's obvious on its face that it was a shoddy investigation and it was, uh, you know, you're just supposed to shut up about it. And, um, right. And it was just the way all of this congealed to suppress inquiry and questioning about it. It just blows me away. And um, mm. so what? I, and what I see going forward is like, uh, wow! I'm just I'm pretty blown away about like, for example, Jeremy Scahill, who came from uh, Democracy Now. I every you know I used to think, wow, they're giving us like the real scoop, you know. So Jeremy Scahill refused to speak at an anti-war event a few years ago in London if uh, Mother Agnes, who was contesting uh, the U.S. in the establishment version of uh, Assad used chemical weapons, uh, he refused to speak if Mother Agnes wasn't taken off the roster of speakers. I mean, this is incredible. Who's Mother Agnes? um, uh, she was a woman in Syria, and um, she she disputed um, the uh, the dominant meme that Assad used chemical weapons. Yeah, I remember her actually. She wrote a paper on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. she did, and, and she was traveling around trying to raise awareness to the uh, you know to to the the scam that was going on, and uh, she was roundly denounced in the mainstream media from. Uh, from this guy with the uh, uh, geez, the Guardian, you know, and then Jeremy Scahill. And then Jeremy Scahill, these books where he hardly mentions the CIA, and he's lauded. He's on Bill Maher. I mean, he's become a freaking millionaire. Yeah. And then, I get my- you know, I go on, yeah, and I just go on and I research Jeremy Scahill. Well, what's Jeremy Scahill had to say about Ukraine and Russia? Mm. Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't this yeah. kind of weird? 
it is kind of weird. And I think what you're dealing with there and people like Scahill is a kind of limited hangout where, you know, he's either, he's that way himself. You know, he's just a kind of, he's fundamentally a true blue American uh, and he, wanna make, he wants to make some money or he's working for the Intel services and he's got a job to do there. And that's a kind of, his job is a limited hangout where they'll kind of give half the story and uh, pretend that's the full story and shut people up, yeah. you know? And and you know what else? Um, I listen to Democracy Now! almost every freaking day. But then when the Libya thing started happening, I remember one time I tuned in right in the lead up to it. And this was where, where public opinion on whether or not to support it was crucial. And I remember there were two people that were, were Gaddafi's evil. Both the freaking guests were pro-war. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what? I'm like, what? And um, they lost credibility. And then with the Ukraine thing, democracy now has been freaking pathetic on that issue. And you just like, Amy Goodman's a millionaire now. She doesn't have open, but she's a freaking millionaire. She's in the club now. Uh-huh. And um, Jeremy's, I mean, uh, Glenn Greenwald with the, the Intercept, funded by mm. Pierre O'Meara. Uh, right, huge uh-huh. billionaire money, right? Well, what, right. what's Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras, what have they said about, you know, the Ukraine? Almost absolutely nothing. I mean, come on, people. This is incredible. They, they will say it's not in their remit, that they're focused on a particular area. Oh, I don't know. I don't want to comment about that, blah, blah, blah. But you're right. In, in terms of positioning themselves as speakers of truth, essentially, they do enormous discredit themselves and to the idea to the truth itself by yeah, and, uh, taking this neutral stand. Well, well, check this out. It's not neutral because uh, it came out that Pierre Omidyar, and this is before he set up the Intercept. This was about maybe 2011. He had given money to the same NGO uh, pro. Uh, you know, anti-government groups that the United States was funding. The same mm-hmm. Yeah, we wrote about that. Yeah, well, isn't it any coincidence that, that Glenn Greenwald, you know, and his crew, they say freaking nothing. I mean, this mm. is like, this is, this is like, it's embarrassing for these people because as much as yeah. I've, I've liked a lot of what Greenwald has had to say, man, I'm just, the guy is sketchy to me now. Yeah. Well, you know, I, let me give you a kind of a sort of a, maybe an explanation on that. Uh, I've kind of thought about that in the past, and obviously you can, you know, there's a possibility that some of them are working for the bad guys, but um, there's also a possibility that they they become aware that um, you know they have these people have careers, right? They they're journalists and they're on TV and stuff, and they want to get as much exposure for themselves and their work, and therefore get money. Uh, they want to get as much as possible. Uh, they probably quickly become aware that um, if they talk about certain things, they'll quickly find themselves nowhere. And so then they have a decision to make. Can, do they tell a partial truth and just leave it at that and then keep getting quoted uh, you know, in, uh, in mainstream newspapers and stuff? Or do they go for the whole truth and end up just writing a blog? Yeah, well, I would go through the whole truth route because, like, Amy Goodman. Well, that's what we do. You know, 
Yeah, well, she's uh, Amy Goodman. I, I really have very little respect for her, um, and it's just that as though they know which way the wind is blowing. They know that hey, it's uh, don't stick your neck out on the on the Russia thing because you're going to be disclassified right. as pro-Putin. Nobody, virtually right. nobody's on the uh, questioning the dominant narrative, and and like the dominant thing is, well, why the heck is the United States uh, supporting coups on Russia's freaking border? I mean, it's just like it's so obvious the uh, just the 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 bullishness and the uh, the the arrogance of these uh, mm-hmm. the neocon agenda. It looks yeah. it makes Putin look like a freaking like choir boy, you know, compared exactly. to these people, man. And yeah, absolutely. Like, what the heck? This is this. We could be blown up by nuclear weapons if people make some mistakes here, man. And uh, it's just I'm just so disappointed with the so-called. Uh, People that are intellectuals that profess to be intellectuals that are inact they they just you just look at their record. Where did they come down on this? You know, mm-hmm. and, and you you find out that they just supported blatant, sketchy propaganda without really like bolstering their arguments, just weak crap, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like what the heck, you know? Yeah, there's not many of us out there. No, there's not. And uh, you know, I I I came across y'all and then uh Harrison show on on saturday just because i'm doing google search and and sot comes up just like repeatedly mm-hmm. well well where's everybody else i mean check it out just check oh. out how often <laughs> check out how often uh democracy now has covered ukraine it's been very sporadic it's been weak mm. and it's just it's just pretty like it's pretty wild but anyway thanks a lot for letting me have my say and y'all have a good weekend bye-bye oh, you too, okay, Jonathan. Thanks, that's another great round from jonathan yeah, Jonathan, you should come back on every week and give us a rant. You can be our weekly ranter because you're good at them, you know, and you you keep it real. Anyway, um, so what else have we got? That's how it is. It's kind of lonely out here. It is, you know, and we're lucky in a certain sense because there are a lot of people uh, out there who don't have the kind of uh, network and stuff that we have that allows us to to reach a kind of slightly wider audience. Uh, and most of the people who are telling the kind of real truth, and again, there's not a lot of them, and I don't mean some crazy truths here, you know, like there's some a lot of people who go too far with the truth and take it too, not too far with the truth, but too far with their uh, analysis of certain things and, and start imagining. Um, Over-conspiracizing. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but the people who kind of really keep it real and go for the full, the full truth and don't stop anywhere, don't... Uh, don't kind of balk at their at a certain kind of sacred cow or sacred kind of belief they have in certain things they, that they're willing to look at everything and go as far as it takes them, um, but keeping it real and keeping it objective. There's very very few or relatively few of those people amongst the so-called kind of objective or alternative news community, and um, most of them are doing what they're doing uh, in a very kind of uh, in a small way, because there isn't the there isn't the, the I suppose the appetite amongst a lot of people for that kind of full on truth, you know. And so most of them are just writing blogs, and there's a lot of stuff out there on on blogs. You have to do a lot of weeding, but there's a lot of stuff out there on blogs uh, written by people who who are doing the same kind of thing we're doing. But like I said, we're in a better position in that we can. Yeah, that's an important point because. Our ability to send out a signal 
is commensurate with the amount of reciprocal interest in that signal. Mm-hmm. Um, you, I mean, the, we we could moan and complain that we're, we're all the truth being suppressed and so on, but really, all forms of information have a certain amount of input in terms of energy, in terms of money, mm-hmm. and the strength of the signal can only be matched by the strength of the money signal that is coming to it. So the strength of our signal is commensurate with the amount of actual interest yeah. there is in the This is the amount of support you get, yeah. This is where we bring it back to mass psychology, the psychology of crowds. And the big question hanging over all humanity is, what do you want to believe? It still seems to us that as a whole, they prefer mm-hmm. to be living a lie. Yeah. And when you get your head around that, you start to go, okay. I think there's certain... You gradually accept. There's certain... Yeah, exactly. But the the, what you need to accept is that there are probably very, very few people on this planet to whom the kind of things that we say, i.e. the unvarnished truth, as as as, as much as, as unvarnished as, as possible, uh, only really applies to a certain small number of people and um, there are other people most people have made a choice that they don't want that truth um, so we try to remind ourselves not to get depressed at how little people relatively uh, even know who we are what we do and what we're seeing uh, because um, we remind ourselves that that it's it, it's not possible it's not even part of the plan that the whole world would uh, turn around and start accepting the unvarnished truth for what it is. Uh, it's just not. It's just not part of the their makeup or yeah. whatever you want to call it. And that's you know that's uh, take, take, uh, that's, kind of, uh, that's kind of a sacred cow in a certain sense. You know, in that uh, for a lot of people that everybody's created equal, everybody's the same, everybody should want the same kind of truth. The truth applies to everybody. Well, actually, it doesn't apply to everybody uh-huh. in, in a real way. Yeah. Because people make a choice that, that it does not apply to them. They only look at a certain thing, they keep their vision focused on a, a certain small section of of reality, and therefore anything else is not of any interest to them and therefore it doesn't apply to them. Jonathan is a good example. He was tuned into a certain frequency of truth and he had to become disappointed in it to search. Mm-hmm. He's more, like, I'm yeah. not happy with this. I search yeah. and search. You find but for some people, they would be happy with that, you know, with, mm-hmm. with, that, with a more limited version of the truth. And some people, again, probably the majority, are happy with a lie. No, nothing even approximating the truth. They're actually more content with a lie. They go to Fox, Fox News and the BBC, etc., and CNN every day to get more of the comfortable lie. And that's a choice, even if they're not aware of it consciously. It's a subconscious choice yeah. that, they're, that they're putting themselves uh, in... Uh, in, in, the, they're going, in the line of that kind of information because that's what they want at a deep level, at a level that they're not even aware of. It's the religion they choose to be part of. They're going to the Guardian because they want to hear the preacher. Right. And it's all Tell very, them what they want to hear. Right. The problem is it's all very subconscious because they're not consciously saying, okay, I know that that other truth or, or the truth exists, but I'm choosing the lie. They cho- they, at a subconscious level, it's, it's about comfortableness. You know, and at a subconscious level within them, there's something that chooses for them effectively. I mean, this is well known in terms of, uh, we had a quote earlier on from uh, Daniel Kahneman, 
Mm-hmm. But then there's uh, his kind of work, and uh, there's a book called Thinking Fast and Slow, which talks about the kind of two levels within. That's his one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. There's two levels within uh, uh, human beings in terms of their their awareness. There's a conscious, uh, there's kind of system, call them system one and system two, and uh, system one is the conscious one, right? No, system, no, system one is the system automatic. One is the automatic unconscious, and system yeah. two is the conscious mind. Uh, so well, system two is the conscious mind and system one is what makes all the decisions for you and decides what yeah. you want and don't want and decides what where you should go and what news you should look at and what makes it comfortable is what you do. Yeah. And that's beyond your awareness. And this is fairly, pretty much kind of uh, categorically or scientifically true. That clip that we played is just a, a segment of of a couple more questions. It's about twice the length, but... After that clip that we played, he goes on to say, um, talking about System 2, that that System 2 is lazy because it doesn't like to work. He said, fundamentally, people don't like to work. Well, it's not that we don't like work necessarily, but if we're given the choice between two options, we'll take the easier one. Mm-hmm. And System 2, like actually thinking about things is hard work. And so people naturally and people in general, unless you train yourself not to, will take the easy way and they won't want to do the work. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. just the way it is. Yeah. An analogy might be, and this is where it gets back to what I was saying, that it doesn't, uh, what we're saying on the, the objective or as close to the objective truth as possible, does not apply in a very real way to some people. Mm-hmm. Because it's probably true, although there's, this is taking the, the idea of system one and system two um, a little bit further, but it's, uh, it's probably true, this analogy is probably true in that some people, a lot of people, if you imagine them as uh, kind of like radios that have receivers and have certain components to receive certain frequencies, uh, and then one radio will receive a, only a short kind of a, um, a narrow range, a narrow range, and, and a bandwidth of, of frequencies that physically cannot receive other frequencies, uh, then other radios can receive different frequencies or more frequencies. And so no one would disagree that, well, a certain frequency doesn't apply to this radio mm-hmm. and it applies to this radio. Well, that's what we're saying about human beings. And this is uh, debunking the idea that everybody's created equal. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently they're not. I suspect that they can, all types can receive all frequencies, but the difference is that not everyone can choose to find or hear another frequency. To select mm. one over the other. Yeah, maybe to discriminate and to. Well, I don't know because, because imagine a world where um, we've got all these authoritarian followers as we have, but truth is being emanated. Mm. Wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't they? I think that's all they're getting. So from the power of the bee, I think there's a phys- I think there's a physical difference in the brain function. So it's not that they can receive. I think that it's that the 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 radio analogy is, is closer to the mark. You know. Uh, and that some people, as a result of the kind of experiences they've had in life, and obviously uh, we know that um, you know life experiences do change kind of the actual physical structure at a kind of neuronal uh, level within people's brains. Different pathways are created, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as a result of different experiences. So I think it's probably closer to say that there is uh, at, almost at a physical level at that kind of yeah. Uh, make uh, kind of a neurological level that there's physical differences that mean someone can be open to certain information and other another person can't. 
I think and, it's more like in a situation like that where the leaders are telling the truth and the people go along with it, it's kind of like being right for the wrong reasons. So when given another choice, like let's say you've got a, a statement about uh, two statements about something, one's true and one's false. And it would be like if you're only presented with the true statement, then you might accept it. But if you've got a choice between the two, it's like some people have no capability of discerning which one is true. Yeah. And which one is have, has some weight, extra weight or importance because it is true. It's like they, that's the signal that they lack. So they can, hear the, they can receive the information on a certain level, but their actual processing of it and their comprehension of it is of a different type mm-hmm. than someone who can. Yeah. So it's a, there's a, a kind of a real difference, uh, I might say, at a physical level. I mean, I've told a little story of a friend of mine who, who told me that uh, when I tell him about he told yeah. me on more than one occasion that when I tell him about uh, what's going on in the world and how things really work and stuff, he told me that it hurts his brain. And that was really interesting to me because there's been studies done where people who were given information that conflicted with their dearly held beliefs, that the brain, that the, that the pain centers or the pain areas of the brain, the part of the brain that registers pain actually lit up, like physical pain, when you're just telling them something. The signal is too strong. They, they don't actually feel, you're not physically hurting them. But the part of the brain that registers physical pain lights up in the brain. And that doesn't happen to other people who receive that information. So that suggests to me that there's some tangible difference in brain function between people. Yeah. And for me as a young person hearing new things, I was curious. Yeah. It seemed to be uh, the opposite tendency to, really? Tell me more. Oh, yeah, that's, that's weird. Cool. Yeah. Keep going. Keep yeah. going. It's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Like, I mean... Yeah, that, that, that's one response. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Now one is stop saying that. It hurts. Go away. Why do you tell me those things? I don't like them. I mean, they're two fairly, you know, the opposite ends of, of a spectrum there, you know, in terms of responses to information. Anyway. Well, brainiacs. We've gone past our, our, uh, our official remit here. I think it's time to get Relic's take on state of the world and how people's brains work do we have relic on the line i don't know oh there he is playing his music he always has that uh, piano beside him he's just ready to go into it at any moment i think it's pre-recorded though it doesn't sound like he's been drinking no Welcome to another excellent edition of Pop Culture Roundup, where we'll jack into the information super freeway and try and avoid getting stuck behind a celebrity manure truck and do some intrepid reporting on all the latest gossip coming out of Hollyweird. It's your old friend Relic here reporting today from my minuscule roundwood log cabin perched atop the rocky shores of the Great Canadian Shield, otherwise known as Upper Lake Canada, where I'm often seen protecting myself from the frigid weather by sporting a big furry hat and a thick woolen scarf. 
I once overheard a conversation between these two particular articles of clothing when I heard my hat say this to my scarf. Hey, you hang around while I go on ahead. And that's snow joke. Uh-huh. All right, moving on now to, to some news from the Celebrity Interlink. UK's independent newspaper is reporting that a 32-year-old California man named Tobias Strebel has been reported missing for over a week. Now, why is this missing person's case of a clearly non-famous individual important to listeners of Pop Culture Roundup, you might ask? Well, Mr. Strebel once made an appearance on a 2014 reality show because he'd just spent over $100,000 on a plastic surgery to look exactly like Canadian pop idol Justin Bleiber. Now, it seems obvious to old Relic here that this Mr. Tobias Strebel was... Well, he must have clearly been off his flipping rocker when he agreed to this cosmetic surgery. And then, once the operation was completed, he must have realized the staggeringly monumental stupidity of this rash decision and now simply refuses to show his new girly baby face in public. There you have it, kids. The mystery is solved. Wait, wait, wait a minute. We have some breaking news coming in. Huffington Post is is reporting that Tobias Strebel's body has just been found, discovered in a hotel room in San Fernando Valley. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Hmm. Now, I suspect I know what all you conspiracy-minded theorists out there might be thinking right now. Perhaps it was the real Justin Bleeper who was just killed off and whose body was found in that infamous Motel 6. And maybe it was the record producer's guild within the Illuminati who simply repeated Placed Mr. Bleeber with this Tobias Strebel person as a look-alike sleeper agent. I mean, have you seen his photograph, kids? They're like identical twins. I doubt even Justin Bleeber's crazy evangelical mother would be able to tell the two of them apart. Must have been one hell of a plastic surgeon. Now, normally, old relic isn't much for high society Illuminati conspiracies. And he'd venture that the death of this Bleeber clone in some seedy motel room was probably just some autoerotic asphyxiation circle jerk gone terribly wrong. Besides, what possible dastardly plan could the New World Order elite have for deep-sixing this tween heartthrob, only to replace him with the only person in the entire world palpably more insane than he is? That would be kind of like replacing Rosie O'Donnell on The View with that 
character, you know, Nurse Annie Wilkes from Misery. As an aside, though, I must admit the possibility that there there could be some nefarious agenda underfoot, put forth by our Freemason-inspired, scaly-skinned occult overlords to, to zombify and reprogram adolescent teenage girls around the globe to accept this type of inane bubblegum pop music as being true and venerable works of art. And maybe the real Justin Bleeber had become aware of this evil plot and was going to expose their underhanded agenda and then was secretly taken care of and replaced before he could spill the proverbial beans. Oh, well, maybe I've said too much already, for they might just decide to deliberately suicide old Relic here as well, just like they did to poor Justin. It's best to leave sleeping lizards lie, as they say. And on an aside but related note, it's little known fact that the the reality show that the recently departed Mr. Strebel had first appeared in involved male contestants undergoing radical plastic surgery in order to win the top prize of being the most feminine-looking. The final round came down to just two contestants, Tobias Strebel as Justin Bleeber and Bruce Jenner as the new Caitlin. And for the first time in the show's history, it ended in a tie. True story. Inconceivable! And speaking of the Garzashane family patriarch, with the Halloween holiday just around the corner... The UK's Daily Telegraph is reporting that an online costume company has been selling a Caitlyn Jenner transgender Halloween costume, where, for one day a year, manly men everywhere can fly their inner rainbow flag and get their fabulous freak on by wearing Caitlyn's one-piece white swimsuit featured on the cover of Vanity Fair. Now, Relic has seen some pretty scary Halloween costumes in my day, but this one pretty much bobs the Adam's apple, if you catch my drift. It kind of gives a whole new meaning to the words trick or terrifying. And if I did happen to run into one of these truly horrifying man-woman monster costumes in a, a dark alleyway somewhere, I suspect that that brown stain in my pillowcase might be something other than Hershey's dark chocolate. And lastly, continuing on with more ultra-retarded news from the Keeping up with the Kartrashian clan, recently a Fox TV news anchor had a virtual conniption fit live on the air when, when he was asked to report on yet another insipid puff piece on Hollywood's least favorite family reality show. 
Let's all have a listen to the clip that expresses so well how all of us normal folks really feel about the crappy Kardashians. Okay, I'm having a good Friday, so I refuse to talk about the Kardashians today. You are on your own, Amy. I can't do it. I've had enough Kardashians. I can't take any more Kardashian stories on this show. I don't care. This family, I'm sick of this family. But she's Sorry, Jenny, that you had to wait. Sorry. And that brings us to the end of another pop culture roundup for this week, kids. <clears throat> My old faithful dog has been scratching on the screen door for a little while now. It's time I let him in to curl up in front of the low burning fire. So until next week, it's this is your old friend Relic here saying, always remember, keep your feet on the ground and your eyes on the stars. All right, thanks for that, Relic. What would we do without uh, these pop culture roundups to remind us of just how much we should not even care about pop culture? Um yeah, so we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, next week, we're going to be interviewing a person, a guy called uh, Ole Damagard. He's a Danish-slash-Swedish uh, former journalist and investigator. He's dedicated 30 years of his life to researching many global conspiracies. His main focus has been on the assassination of the Swedish Prime Minister, Olaf Palm, JFK, Robert Kennedy, MLK, John Lennon, Lady Di, Pretty much everything. So we're going to be talking to him about uh, some things, and maybe we'll try and challenge him on certain things. But we don't know exactly <clears throat> what we're going to be talking to him about other than those general topics. So uh, that'll be next Sunday at the same time. So, uh, yeah, tune in if you can. Uh, thanks to our listeners and to our callers and to our chatters. Hope you all have a good time. And thanks to Harrison, who will also be back next week, so uh, you look forward to that. Yay! Until then, have a good one. Mm. See you next week. Bye. Bye.